according to the Gospel Herald, an Islamic extremist who was once a persecutor of Christians in Syria has reportedly converted to his victim's religion and experienced God's mercy and grace in an incredible way. According to one missionary's account, Pastor Tom Doyle revealed the story of Osama, who was an Islamic extremist member of a radical group, which is Syrian affiliate of Al-Qaeda. However, God had a different plan for his life. His life took a turn when a Christian missionary began sharing the gospel with Osama. Soon the Holy Spirit, bit by bit, began to soften the terraced, cold, stony heart. Sooner or later, he yielded his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, completely turning his back to his former way of life. After the conversion of Osama, the terror group to whom he formerly served was infuriated by his newly found faith. The jihadists of the terror group tortured him brutally. They scheduled to execute him. However, just a night before he was to be executed, he was given an option that if he would, ha- if he would renounce Christianity, his life would be spared. Despite facing certain death, Osama refused to deny Christ. And the jihadists who was to execute him got impressed by Osama's persistent Christian faith that he had decided to save him. And so he told Osama, when we blindfold you, and when you hear the first shot, hit the ground and do not move. Pretend that you are a dead man. Osama did as his executor advised him to do. He did not open his eyes, pretended to be dead. After a few minutes, when he finally opened his eyes, he found the members of the jihadist execution squad all dead, and the jihadist who was leading the squad was gone. In this way, his life was saved. Now, if it were up to many of us, we would likely choose for God's judgment to be poured out on groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, in which one day... His perfect justice will set everything straight at the final judgment. But it should cause us to be absolutely knocked off of our spiritual feet when we see testimonies, when we hear testimonies like Osama, men who have most likely enslaved or beheaded women and children who have taken part in striving to wipe out Christians in places like Syria or other people groups within Syria. And yet God, he relentlessly pursues wicked men like this to extend his mercy to. And it can be easy for us as Christians if we're not careful to forget just how unbelievable the mercy of God is to sinners who repent and turn to Christ. Mercy can become just another Christian term that we just throw around as we're talking to other Christians or as we're having gospel conversations that we fail to, to stop and reflect on what it really means and take the time to remember how Christ has extended, or God has extended his mercy to us in Christ when he saved us. But not only that, that he also extends his mercy on a daily basis to all of us who are in Christ. And maybe there are those who are here who have forgotten how unbelievable God's mercy is. Maybe there are some here today who haven't turned uh, from their sin and experienced the mercy of God extended to us in Christ. Well, the message we'll find in Jonah chapter 3 today and throughout the entire book is one in which God, he extends his unbelievable mercy to sinners who repent. And so my hope, my prayer today is that we can behold the unbelievable mercy of God that he extends to sinners who repent. And so if you can, take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 3. As you turn there, I'll kind of give a little recap on... uh, what we've covered so far in Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you remember when, when Pastor Andy preached, he preached uh, Jonah chapter 1, 
And we see that Jonah, he's been given this command by God to go to this great city, Nineveh, uh, an evil city with evil people in it, and to proclaim out against them because of the evil that has come up before God. But what does Jonah decide to do? He decides to flee, uh, to flee from the presence of God, to flee from God's call upon his life. We learn from Pastor Annie that about the sinfulness of the human heart and how it's absolutely foolish to flee from the presence of God. But thankfully, God, he mercifully and relentlessly pursues rebellious sinners. And even though Jonah is fleeing from the privilege of proclaiming God's word to the Ninevites and from the presence of God who sees all, God relentlessly pursues Jonah by commanding this storm to pound against the ship that Jonah had boarded to flee from the presence of God to head to Tarshish. And we saw how God, he extended his great mercy to the sailors who were fearing for their lives. As they're, as they're crying out to God, they're, they're different gods for, for mercy, but we see that no one answers. And then they begin to cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they found out it's because of him that this great storm had come upon them. And they do all that they can do to try to, to make it through the storm without casting Jonah over the side of the boat. But they eventually and reluctantly cast him over the side of the boat. And the storm ceases. And we're left with this picture of these sailors who are fearing God and who make sacrifices to the God of Jonah. But then we see how God continues his relentless and merciful pursuit of Jonah as he commands this great fish to swallow Jonah. And as Joshua preached last week, uh, it seems by the end of chapter 2 that Jonah has repented. And then God eventually commands the fish to spit him back up. And this is where we're at as we begin Jonah chapter 3. So if you haven't turned there, Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through verse 10. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we as your people can gather around your word this morning in Jonah chapter 3 and uh, have the opportunity to, to be reminded of how unbelievable your mercy is that you extend to sinners who repent. We ask that you would give us uh, just an understanding, uh, even though we can't fully grasp it, of how great your mercy is. Um, we pray in your name, Christ. Amen. So the main idea of chapter 3, if you want to write this down, is 
God extends his unbelievable mercy towards sinners who repent. God extends his unbelievable mercy towards sinners who repent. And in the first two verses, we'll see God's mercy and Jonah's second chance. You see, then the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And we read verse 2 of Jonah chapter 3. It seems like deja vu. It seems like we've been here before. Well, it's not just deja vu. We have been here before. Because you remember in chapter 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah there. And it commanded him to go to Nineveh and proclaim the word that he gave to him. But what did he do? He fled. And we should stop right here and we should be reminded how great God's mercy is even in this moment. Because rebellious Jonah, the guy that you don't want to be, the rebellious prophet, disobeyed God. He did it the best that he could to flee from the presence of God. And yet God relentlessly pursued him. He mercifully pursued him. And now he's giving Jonah a second chance to carry out what God had commanded him to do in chapter 1. You would think that God would toss Jonah to the side and, and get the, the guy who's got the perfect track record, the this faithful man over here, unlike Jonah, but yet he extends God's, God extends his mercy to Jonah and gives him a second chance to carry out what he has commanded him to do. And we don't know the exact content of the message yet. Maybe Jonah did not even know exactly what he is going to proclaim at this point. Maybe he doesn't know it until he's traveling to Nineveh. Maybe he doesn't know it until he gets to the city. We're not sure. But we do know that the source of the message is God. And that Jonah is simply just a mouthpiece or an instrument that God is going to use to proclaim this message to the Ninevites. And we know that most likely this message is going to be a message of judgment against the evil Ninevites. If you remember in chapter 1, there's a mention of uh, the wickedness of the Ninevites. We don't see it in chapter 2 in uh, Jonah's second, second call. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, you see that the evil of the Ninevites is coming up before him. You can almost picture... Uh, this just wicked, nasty, just filthy stench of the Ninevites rising up before God. These are evil people doing evil, wicked things. Franklin Page writes, It is sufficient to say that the evil of the city incensed the Lord, and he commanded his servant Jonah to proclaim a message of judgment against it. While all sin is abhorrent to God, in some instances a specific group of people had become so wicked that God issued a special call of localized judgment. So it was with Nineveh. Archaeology confirms the biblical witness to the wickedness of the Assyrians. They were known in the ancient world for brutality and cruelty. A guy named Brian Estelle, he says, even in the early church, Nineveh came to be regarded as the symbol of the devil himself. So the Assyrians were known for their brutality, their cruelty. They worshipped false gods and goddesses. And they most likely took part in numerous other wicked deeds and wicked things. So in one sense, you can easily see throughout the entire book of Jonah how Jonah is the prophet that nobody wants to be. He's disobedient. He's rebellious. We can be quick to say that Jonah is such a sinner, which he is. But I'm not so sure that if I were placed in Jonah's shoes, if I would have been the perfect prophet either. See, Jonah, he knows how wicked these people are, which we can see in Jonah 1, has played part of the role in him fleeing from God's call upon his life. To proclaim to these wicked Ninevites. 
And you can understand, too, that realize that Jonah, he most likely he knows how wicked and evil these people are. He, he could have possibly seen the wicked deeds that these people have done. He, he could have possibly heard how evil these people are by word of mouth. But understand that unlike Jonah, God can, has seen every single wicked deed that every single person within this city has done. Jonah saw just a, a glimpse of how evil they were. God has seen the entire thing. He's seen every deed, every wicked act. He sees every act of brutality. He sees every time they worship their false gods, every time they perform a sexually immoral act, and so on. But not only that, he also sees every evil intention of their hearts and every wicked thought that they have. He sees everything. And the author of the, it's like the author of the book of Hebrews when he writes, Nothing in all creation is hidden from this God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so it's like the Ninevites are standing naked before God with their evil exposed. But he still relentlessly pursues these sinners and he extends his mercy to them through Jonah. I think we also have to understand that all of us stand naked before God. He has seen every wicked deed and every word we have spoken, he, every evil intention we've had, every sinful thought that we've ever had and will have. If you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, then understand that before our standing before God changed from being unrighteous to righteous or unholy to holy or from condemned to justified, we were all at one point Ninevites. Not literally, but God looked at us with the same righteous indignation, the same anger that he looked upon the Ninevites with. And for those who are in Christ, we're all once deserving of the wrath of God for all of eternity because of our sinfulness. It's like Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Or as he writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we were all enemies of God. Or Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked according to the course of this world. I mean, maybe some of us were indulged in sexually immoral acts. Others spoke in inappropriate and crude ways. Some slandered others. And we could go down a list of ways in which we were displaying our sinfulness to different degrees. The point is, is that if we were in Christ, then there was a point in which we were not. And we, like the Ninevites, were faced with the coming judgment of God in which we were stand before him condemned with a sentence of wrath for all of eternity. But like we will see with the Ninevites, God relentlessly pursued us and extended his mercy to us. So you see God's mercy in Jonah's second chance in the first two verses. But then in verse 3 and 4, you'll see Jonah's obedience. Look at verse 3. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. See, unlike Jonah's response in chapter 1, he responds this time with obedience. He obeys the word of the Lord, and the text says that he travels a day's journey into this massive city. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian Empire. And it was, it was a major economic, it was a major military power. I mean, nobody in the ancient world had seen a city like this up until this point. 
They say that in Nineveh's prime, it could have held up to 175,000 people. But we see in chapter 4, verse 11, that during Jonah's time, there was 120,000 people within the city. And so Jonah, he travels a day's journey into this city, this massive city filled with other 120,000 people, most, if not all, who were evil, sinful, wicked people. And he begins to proclaim, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God is proclaiming a message of judgment against these Ninevites. And you're wondering what's going through Jonah's mind as he's going into the city, as he's proclaiming this message of judgment. He's likely thinking, we can only speculate, he's likely thinking that these people are wicked, they don't deserve the forgiveness, they don't deserve the the mercy of God, instead they deserve the wrath of God. We don't know at this point. I think we can see Jonah's heart a little more clearly. We'll see it next week in chapter 4 when Jordan preaches. But in spite of how Jonah might have felt or how wicked these people are, we see how God pursues these sinners through the proclamation of his word of judgment by his prophet Jonah. And look at how they respond in verse 5. Nineveh repents. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, if you've been a friend of Jonah sitting off to the side as your boy Jonah's walking down the streets of Nineveh proclaiming this message of judgment, then you're most likely thinking, my, my boy Jonah's not going to last very long. You know, what he's saying is going to spark an uproar, and there's going to be a riot in the streets, and they're going to destroy him. But in spite of their wickedness, God grants to these people the ability to respond to the message of judgment given by Jonah. By believing what he said and repenting. But before we go on to the next few verses, I believe that we have to understand what true or biblical repentance is. I think we can, just like mercy, toss around these words, uh, these Christian terms, without really truly sometimes understanding what they mean or just assuming that others understand what they mean. So what biblical repentance is not, it's not just a change of thought. You know, someone can have a knowledge of sin without actually turning from their sin as something that is wicked and dishonoring to God and will ultimately bring about the ruin. So it's not just a change in thought. But biblical repentance is not just a feeling of sorrow. I feel bad for what I've just done. It's not just feeling sorry for the ways in which we've sinned. The Bible's full of examples of people who have worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to life. You know, a non-Christian can feel sorry for hitting his wife or his children, but not have true godly sorrow that results in genuine repentance before God. So it's not just a change in thought. It's not just feeling sorrow or worldly sorrow. And it's also not trying to be a better person in order to gain favor with God. Repentance is is much more than just a, a simple act of changing outward behavior. So it's not just a change of thought. It's not just a feeling of of worldly sorrow. It's not just trying to be a better person in order to to change your, your standing before God. What biblical repentance is, if you want to write this definition down, biblical repentance is a change in thought that results in godly sorrow over sin and a change in action. So biblical repentance is a change in thought that results in godly sorrow over sin and a change in action. And we see in verse 5 that the evil Ninevites respond to this message of judgment given by God through Jonah 
with a change in thought that results in godly sorrow over sin and a change in action. You see, one, that they believe Jonah's message. There's a change in thought has happened here. They obviously see that what they've been doing is wrong. That it's evil before the sight of the, the God of Jonah. There's a change in thought that happens here. God also grants these people, these evil Ninevites, with godly sorrow to come upon them, which also results in a change of action. We see they put on sackcloth and begin to fast. And whenever you see someone putting on sackcloth in the Old Testament, it usually means that they're either mourning, they're repenting, or they're doing both. Now, this wasn't like a, a comfortable nightgown that you would put on at night to lounge around in. This was something that would be very uncomfortable, very itchy. Just it, It's not a good experience. And this uncomfortableness would show that they're denying their comforts. This was an uncomfortable dress that would show that they are denying themselves. Along with the fasting, they're showing that these Ninevites are humbling themselves and sorrowfully turning from their evil ways because of the impending judgment that God has brought about upon them through Jonah. And this is a genuine repentance that has happened among the Ninevites. So it seems like in verse 5 that this is describing somewhat of a, a general idea that these people, from the greatest to the least of them, from the richest to the poor, from the, the most powerful to the least powerful, in general, everyone is repenting, a genuine repentance, a change in thought that leads to a godly sorrow and a change in action. They all repented. But then when he moves to verses 6 through 9, he moves from this, this big idea of all the people repenting to giving a, a specific example to solidify his point that Everybody's repenting, greatest to least. He gives an example of the richest, most powerful, probably the most revered person within the city of Nineveh, the king. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 9. You'll see the king's repentance and a proclamation to the people in verses 6 through 9. Starting in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So this message of judgment proclaimed through Jonah reaches the king of Nineveh, the richest, most powerful guy within the city of Nineveh. And it says that he responds by removing his robe. And I thought it was a pretty neat little side note. The Hebrew word for robe also translate glory, translates in, uh, into glory. That's another meaning for it. So you can imagine that the kingly robe that he wore in a way was his glory and his pride as a king. This is one of the things that showed or displayed to the people that he is a ruler. But the king, he humbles himself, he removes his robe, and we, we see that he covers himself in sackcloth, and he sat down in ashes. And this is showing that he's ruined. He's mourning over his sinfulness and their coming judgment as he repents in humility. And not only that, he has it proclaimed throughout the kingdom and published throughout the kingdom that everyone, even the cattle, are to be covered in sackcloth. They are to turn from their evil ways and cry out to God. They are to abstain from eating food, even drinking water, which shows you the, 
the, the extremity they're willing to go to show that this is a genuine repentance before God. But you see that there is a change in mind, even with the example of the king, that leads to a godly sorrow and a change in action. This is a genuine repentance. But listen to what the, the king says in verse 9. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So it almost seems as if there's no guarantee within this message of judgment that Jonah's proclaiming that if they repent, God will relent, that he'll show them mercy. There's no guarantee. The king says, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger. But look at verse, nine, verse 10. We'll see how God responds to their genuine repentance. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So God, he responds by showing mercy to these repentant sinners. He relents of the disaster that he said he would do to them. He does not pour out his judgment upon them. But instead, he extends his mercy to them. He does not give them what they deserve, which is what mercy is. It's not giving someone what they deserve. I think it's absolutely unbelievable that the mercy of God that he extends to these Ninevites who repent, these wicked, evil sinners within the city of Nineveh. God could have given Jonah the judgment that he deserved by allowing him to to decay away in the belly of the great fish, but he did not give him what he deserved. Jonah repented, and God extended mercy. And God could have given these Ninevites what they deserved by justly destroying the city of Nineveh and all the wicked people within it. But he did it. The Ninevites repented, and God extended his mercy. And if you've repented of your sin and received the mercy of God in Christ, then understand that God could have given us exactly what we deserved, and he would have been perfectly just in doing so. We were all enemies of God at one point. We were all destined for an eternity where God would have poured out his wrath upon us in perfect justice and in judgment. But he didn't. Because God, he relentlessly pursued us and he extended his mercy to us through Christ by sending someone to to share the gospel or by granting you the opportunity to hear the gospel and granting you with the repentance and the gift of faith to receive the one who saves And most believers are taken away. They're overwhelmed by the unbelievable mercy of God when he initially grants them with the ability to see their sin for what it really is and to turn from turn from it and receive Christ. But I think sometimes over time, we we often allow ourselves to view God's mercy as just another Christian term that we use, that we throw around. It becomes commonplace to us. We fail to daily thank him for uh, and allow this characteristic of who he is to fuel our worship of him. And we should be taken away every day as believers by God's mercy that he's extended to us in Christ. But not only that, how he daily extends his mercy to us for the things that we do that are deserving of his rightful judgment. The only reason he does not give us what we deserve is because he has dealt with our sins in Christ. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've realized that even though you claim to be a Christian, you claim that title as a Christian. You know the facts about the gospel really well. You come to church on a regular basis. You realize that sitting here and hearing this message, maybe you haven't truly repented and received Christ. You look at your life and you realize that you're not living a life that's daily marked by the fruit of repentance. 
And what I mean by that is that there's an initial step of repentance in which God grants us with the ability to see our sin for what it really is. He grants us the ability to turn from that life of sin and to receive Christ. And that initial repentance, it changes our standing before God once and for all. We go from being unrighteous to righteous. But for Christians, our lives should daily be marked by the fruit of repentance. And this isn't for the purpose of changing our standing before him, but it's simply the daily battle with sin where we are weeding out the sins in our lives through the power of the Spirit and his word, through renewing our minds in the word of God, having brothers and sisters come alongside us to show us the sin in our life that we may not may be blind to. And it's, a, it's a process of slowly becoming more like Christ. It's a process where we're daily, our mind is being changed and renewed by the word of God in which we're having godly sorrow over the sin that's still present within our lives. And we're taking action to deal with it, to kill it, to make war against it. Now, if this doesn't describe your life, then maybe there's a need to re-examine, to see if you've truly repented and received Christ. But maybe you're sitting here today, and you realize that with, without a doubt that you haven't repented. You haven't trusted in Christ. There's no doubt in your mind. Understand what Christ said in Luke 11, 29-32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, The generation is an evil generation. It seeks for signs, but no sign will be given except to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the Ninevites, they repented after Jonah proclaimed God's message of judgment. But they were not guaranteed that God would extend his mercy to them. Someone greater than Jonah has come. Christ. He came and he lived a perfect sinless life that we could not live. He bore our sins in his body. And God the Father unleashed his perfect or his, his, his uh, judgment that we deserved on Christ who took our place. And unlike the Ninevites who were not guaranteed that God would extend their mercy to him if they, if they repented, we are guaranteed that if we turn from our sin, if we truly repent and turn to Christ and receive him, that our standing before God will be changed forever. That's a guarantee. If you think that you are, you're sitting here today, you think that you're too sinful or that your past has so much sin in it that you're unable to receive the mercy of God, then understand, remember the Ninevites, how wicked these people are, how their stench rose up before God, and yet they repented and God extended his mercy to them. And he can extend his mercy to you in Christ if you repent and receive him. If that describes one of you, then please come talk to me or Pastor Andy or someone here about what it means to repent and trust in Christ. But as Pastor Andy comes up to lead us in communion, uh, he'll speak about Christ's body that was broken for us, how his blood was shed for us. Um, and as we take part in this together, as we worship in taking part in communion together, take time to reflect upon the unbelievable mercy of God that he extends. He's extended to us in Christ. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much for who you are. You are good, and we thank you that, God, you uh, you relentlessly pursued us. Uh, you extended your mercy to us in Christ. God, that you uh, have, have sent someone to proclaim the gospel of how we are sinners separated from you and how um, Christ was sent to pay penalty for our sins and if we turn to from our sin and trust in you christ that we'll be saved we're thankful that you extend your mercy to us in that way we're thankful that um, god you didn't leave us in our sin that you didn't uh, pour out your just judgment and wrath upon us but you extended your mercy to us in christ uh, we pray that as we take communion right now lord that as Andy leads us in this time of communion that you would uh Receive this this worship that we take part in as a fragrant aroma to you, and um, that you would be glorified. We pray that in your name, Christ. Amen.